And welcome back. Actually, you should be welcoming me back. I took uh, I took the week off last week. I went to Los Angeles. I'm going to tell you all about that. But you are listening to this American podcast, Comedy Edition, on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. It is approximately, it's a little after 9 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, which means that it is 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. Uh, this show will be downloaded later on on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. So... If you're listening and then you want to tell someone about it and have them listen later, they can, as you can, if you want to go back and listen again, uh, just by simply going to ComedySchoolsRadio.com. Uh, I get a, I'm very excited. I'm actually a little nervous, oddly enough, about uh, the show today. Um, if I've learned anything from Donald Trump, and there are things that you can learn even from uh, people that you don't like or people that you don't agree with. If I've learned anything from Donald Trump, I've learned that uh, uh, I need to be better prepared for the things I do. Uh, that I'll, sometimes you can wing it. So um, I prepared for my interview today with Shelly Yakis. I uh, actually sent him 10 questions, and it was probably one of the tougher things I did with this show. I am fortunate enough, oftentimes, to be able to then formal, formally interview people who uh, I have a personal relationship with. Shelly Yakis is one of those people. So, uh, and we've had free-ranging conversation that have gone on for uh, hours about music and creativity and how uh, one goes about uh, taking an idea and turning it into something that other people will respond to, that other people will be affected by. And they're free-ranging conversations, but this is going to be an interview. And uh, I realized that uh, as important as the interview is to me, uh, for a smart man, a wise man like Shelley Yakis, the, the interview is important to him as well because it'll be a record of something that he um, uh, has opinions on, experiences on, uh, 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 thoughts on, that it will be a record of that. So uh, we had... Uh, we had quite a bit of uh, pre-interview conversation before this interview. That being said, I might ask him one question off of the list of questions and end up uh, talking about something else entirely tangentially. So it's going to be great. Um, if if you if you don't know who he is, and, and very few people know who the sound engineer is or the producer is, or even on your favorite band who the bass player is, um, if you he um, just to give you an inkling. He was the sound engineer for John Lennon's Imagine album. Probably one of the um, greatest, uh, uh, probably one of the greatest albums of the rock era. Probably one of the greatest albums of the rock era. He was the sound engineer for that, along with so many other things. So uh, the interesting thing, the point I'm getting to, is so much of the music that I've loved uh, of the last 20, 30, 35 years, even more, uh, that spoke to me the moment I heard it. Uh, it turns out that uh, Shelley Ackes was involved with it, whether it's uh, uh, Tom Petty or Don Henley's End of the Innocence or John Lennon's Imagine or more and more and more. He was involved with it. It's an interesting thing. All right, do you know what I want to do now, Cheryl, is I want to take a little break. Okay, let's play a little music for the people. At 9.30, we're going to have Shelley Ackes, sound engineer extraordinaire, the guy who was uh, there, present in the room when John Lennon was creating imagine there and present in the room for so many other great pieces of music and especially if you're a writer or an artist of any level talking to a man who knows a little bit about 
the creative process, and his take on it. You're listening to This American Podcast on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. We'll be right back. We're ready to go. Good morning, Shelly Yakis. How are you? I'm doing very well, and yourself? I am, uh, I am peachy. I am uh, uh, peachy beyond, uh, beyond anything I can even tell you uh, right now. Uh, we wish we had you in our studio right now. As a matter of fact, uh, a little bit of our studio is set up based off of uh, advice that you had given me as about, opposed to, uh, about what kind of microphones I should have for uh, uh, this type of endeavor and uh, what kind of mixing board. So we want to thank you for that. We want to tell everybody who we're talking to and what we're talking about. First off, you're listening to This American Podcast Special Edition, not Comedy Edition, this morning on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. And uh, I'm actually nervous, oddly enough, to have uh, uh, this guest on the air. There's two reasons uh, that I'm nervous. One is uh, the guy has been involved in things that uh, touched me before I ever knew him. Uh, Sounds and music that just touched me from the moment I heard him. This is a great song. It sounds like they're talking to me. He's been involved with it. And also, he's a personal friend of mine who I've talked to uh, uh, for countless hours about comedy, music, creativity, the business. And I just, when it's a friend of mine who I want to do uh, do uh, right by, I get a little nervous. So, uh, good morning, Shelley. Good morning. Uh, for the, um, for, um, go ahead. That's very, that's very revealing, Tony. I never know you, you felt that way. You know what? Uh, I, you know you're a very very talented guy on your own, and uh, and uh, you you feel and teach the same things that I think, very much of the same things that I think when I'm working with artists and labels and producers and stuff. And so I just thought I'd throw that out. And thank you, thank you for the compliment. It's very nice. Well, thank you. Uh, we've already kind of uh, we've teased quite a bit through our social media uh, who you are and why we're talking to you, but. For those people who um, listen regularly without without um, checking that sort of thing out, uh, Shelly Yakis is, in my mind, I've been present at the creation for so much of what is the uh, the soundtrack of my and countless other people's lives. You started out as a sound engineer. You learned your trade. And you could correct me if I'm wrong at any time, because sometimes the legend and the fact gets confused. Uh, you started out the legendary record plant in New York. Uh, you uh, actually built... Uh, and was uh, deeply involved in building A uh, and M records, and uh, you've been involved as a sound engineer with people like Frank Sinatra, uh, John Lennon, Don Henley, Tom Petty, Nine Inch Nails. Um, I want to tell a quick story before I get into the questions about who you are in the world that you're in. Uh, a number of years ago, I was involved uh, with a company that you were involved with, my studio. And we were making videos, and we had two legendary gangster rappers that were coming in, DJ Quick and Corrupt. And uh, uh, they are not only, not that they're gangsters, but very street guys and very wary guys. And we tried to get them to come in to make videos with that company. And they agreed to it, but they still came in warily. They walked into the offices and were still looking at us like there was something wrong with us. And then DJ Quick, and if you know this music, you know who he is. Just like if you know country rock or folk rock you know who graham parsons is dj quick is kind of like that for gangster rap he's walking through he's not saying anything he looks on the wall and he sees gold records and he sees your name on a gold record he goes shelly is dj quick and 
do you know Shiliakis? And I go, I do. He goes, do you think you could ever introduce me to Shiliakis? Because this guy who was coming on like with murder and mayhem in his eyes asked me that question. I go, not only can I introduce you to him, I open up the door. I go, he's right in here. <laughs> and this gangster rapper guy just became like, and I'm not putting the guy down. He was like a 12-year-old kid. He couldn't believe that he was meeting Shiliakis. That's when I knew who you were in the music world. I knew who you were from your resume, but that's when I knew who you were. Do you remember that? I, I do. I do. And it's, it's very, very nice. <laughs> and, uh, I the same respect for him, you know. It's, uh, it, it, a lot of, uh, some of the records that I worked on, uh, some of the mixes, things were sampled off of those mixes for... Uh, hip hop and R and B music, and uh, I, I think I, I think I got well known to maybe a snare drum hit or two that was in the clear that was stolen a number of times and used on uh, a, a lot of records. So it's really a compliment. But I wanted to make a couple of corrections. Sure. Um, for a few things you said in the beginning, a lot of people think I uh, say that I was, uh, you know, one of the architects and builders of A and M Records. It was a Actually, A and M Studios, which is uh, the part of A and M Records, and on the same the same lot. So I was uh, vice president of A and M Studios, and and we we rebuilt those studios from we 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 tore everything out and and started with a shell, and then recreated uh, with Jimmy Iovine and myself, and and a, a great uh, bunch of guys that that really knew their stuff and. We, uh, you know, it's another thing I want to talk about in this business. Nobody ever does anything great by themselves. It's always with teams of people, whether it's one more people, one more person, or many other people. But so then we we built those studios for Herb and Jerry, and and uh, you know they became really popular. And, and the other thing was my start really was at my dad's studio in Boston. Uh, uh, he had a studio called Ace Recording Studios in Boston for. You know when he got out of the service in the 40s and and uh when i was just a kid i'd go there with him on weekends and vacations and stuff and i was a gopher you know go for this go for that <laughs> and uh and i and that was really my start and and i remember saying to him dad can i can i learn how to cut a cut an acetate which is you know the 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 first record of a, of a piece of music that goes to the plant and then is then is pressed from there. And they have these cutting lathes there. He said, well, when you can see over the tables, you could do it. I was 10 years old. And I think when I was 14, I could see over the top of the table. Um, uh, here, I wanna, so when you mentioned A&M, so first off, you mentioned two cool things. You mentioned Jimmy Ovine. Uh, so we're talking about the man who... Uh, Involved with Interscope Records and uh, uh, Dr. Dre and all that, but he was someone who you worked with early on. So, uh, but the other thing, so you built out AMM Studios, and I'm, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about at the uh, uh, location on La Brea near Hollywood Boulevard, correct? Shell? Have we lost Shelly? Shelly, no, we, it appears that we're on here, but we are, um, oh, hey, he's calling back, hold on, here we go, let's try this. Hi. Hi, did, did we lose you? Yeah, 
yeah, I don't know who lost who, but uh, who lost you know, who? These cell phones. It's not a perfect medium, so I don't know we, where we left off, but but. Uh, well, here, here's 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 what I was uh, uh, asking you, uh, and you know what, and we'll fix it in post. Um, uh, when you say A and M Studios, I'm I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about the location on is it. Um, is it a La Cienega near Hollywood Boulevard, the old Charlie Chaplin yeah, studio? No, no, La, La Cienega right on the right near Sunset. Yeah, yeah. So you're these the the A and M Studios were located. Oh no, no, sorry, sorry, it's La Brea. La Brea, La Brea. Yeah. You know what? I lived right off there. I lived on Hollywood Boulevard between those two back in the '80s, and I often confuse them. But I was often confused back in the '80s due, <laughs> due to a better living through chemicals sort of lifestyle. Yeah. But I used to pass by there and go, those, those were the original uh, Charlie Chaplin studios where he made some of the greatest comedy, where he created, what, to this day, some of the greatest uh, comedy films ever. Now, there's still people who are doing Charlie Chaplin bits and don't realize it. Were you aware? Here's the question. So you're building these studios where so much great music was then made, okay, on the same spot where Charlie Chaplin created so much great comedy art. And then I was watching a, uh, a documentary about a recording studio in Alabama, Muscle Shoals, and hearing how the artist talked about it. Do you think there are places in the world, you know, spots where there's just some sort of magic, some sort of vortex, some sort of universal thing that goes through? Yes. Okay, can you, and, and is no. that... <laughs> 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 good, good. good. I, oh, I can't, I can't wait to hear this. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, I do. No, I don't. Um, well, oh, have you ever seen a spirit? Have you ever seen a ghost? There's no proof. <laughs> no, there's no proof. There's no proof. <laughs> but it's just. Do I, do, I think, do, do I? Do I think that that stuff exists? Absolutely. I don't know what it is. There's, look, not everything in this universe can be explained, and and certainly in record making, there's a certain look. Did you, did you ever go to a concert, whether it was in a club or or in a big venue like a, you know a Madison Square Garden size venue, and at the end of the song, the players are going longer on the outro of the song when it was supposed to already have ended. Yes. It just and and well, how do they know what to play? How are they interacting so perfectly with each other when they've never played this part of the song before? And every touch of the instrument is a different note. So that thing that happens sometimes, uh, where people are in tune with each other. Um, and there are a lot of names for it, and there's a lot of like, what is that stuff? How, how can it be explained? And I'm and I'm here to say that it can't be explained. Uh, it's that thing that happens between people who are like-minded and who are totally immersed in what they're doing, and the notes just <coughs> starts their fingers and their hands and their it's mindless. And I don't mean in a, in a dumb way. I mean, they're not thinking. They're feeling. And they don't even know if their feet are touching the ground at that point. And all of a sudden, they all end the song together. And now this is another minute 
or, or two minutes of music they never rehearsed or played, sure, it's a continuation of the song. But think about it. It's like, what is that stuff? And w when that sort of uh, expands itself into the recording studio, and there, there are these moments in the studio that are like, that are like, holy cow moments, like, wow, what happened? Where, where did that come from? You know, I don't know. It's just something that you that you roll with, that we roll with in the studio, and you know we're grateful for those moments. Uh, I'm sure the producer and the record label, I certainly am grateful for those moments to experience them and and hear the end result. It's, it can it can be pretty amazing. But good. I'm I'm sorry, Don. If there's really a if there's really something you want to ask me about this this part of it, I'll, I'll try to answer. You know? Well, you 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 kind of just just did answer. Uh, um you know that there. You know, recently uh, Shirley and I, uh, uh, my wife, who also, uh, more importantly in my life right now, uh, <laughs> is my producer. <laughs> there, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Uh, Hi, Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we went. And, we went and saw Dead and Company in San Diego, and uh, one of the reasons that I've gone to uh, whatever the permutation of a Dead show is ever since I was a little boy in 1970 is I'm always going to hear the same thing different, you know, and there's times I'm going to go and there's times that the shows sometimes in the eighties were terrible because of uh, health issues of band members or them not getting along. And then sometimes the whole show would be terrible. One song would be, you know, I would transcend you and you go, that was worth the ticket. But they seem to do that where they, they're almost like unafraid to go, we're going to go where we don't know where we're going do you find there are artists who are uh, who are maybe very technically adept and they're well versed in their craft, but have a fear of going to that space that where they don't know what the next note's going to be? And do you encourage them to do that? Is that part of your job? Is there anything you ever tried to do? Well, it's interesting. That's an interesting question. Um, uh, I find with man, I, I have to divide it. I, we have to kind of draw a dividing line here an imaginary dividing line and say, all right, for people who have record deals, it's very different to them. And maybe we could get into that in, in a minute, but answer your question. Artists and groups and people who don't have record deals, um, who are kind of working on their own and trying to do self-promotion and all that stuff, I experience that a lot with them. I, do, I experience something different with people that are signed to, to record labels and stuff, but it's not that. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, try to encourage, I try to encourage people that are unsigned that I work with to look. Look, I've only, I've only had one songwriter out of the thousands and thousands of songs that I've recorded say to me, you know, Shelly, that song came out exactly how I imagined it. And most of the time, uh, with a producer involved, which is you know always important and necessary, but with a producer involved and a label involved, the song takes on the melody stays the same and the words are the same, but the the arrangement could change, and the presentation of the song, whether it's a ballad or whether it becomes up tempo or a rock or or does it was it originally written as a ballad? but it's recorded and released as a rocker, the artists, uh, it's always hard for them to grasp because they hold this, hold their music so closely to the vest. 
um, it's hard for them to grasp this change at first because they've been hearing it a certain way for so long. So when a band is unsigned or an artist is unsigned and those changes start to happen, they fight it even harder than people with record deals generally. And I, I, the experience that I've had is, for example, if I meet with a, a band that either they approach me or I, I, I approach them because I heard them somewhere and really thought, wow, I'd love to work with these people, these guys, these girls. Um, well, let me hear your songs. And they say, uh, they play me the songs, and I say, well, what else do you have? You know, I know yeah. you have other stuff. They always have other stuff. What else do you have? Oh, I got other stuff, but it's old. Well, well, where is it? Oh, it's in a drawer. I said, it's dark in there, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> is it going to see the light of day? No. Well, why not? Because I wrote it six or eight. It's like a disease almost. And it holds them back. And I, and I try to say, well, all right. And, and this happens often. Well, when did you write this song? I wrote it six years ago. I wrote it eight years ago. But I, I was in a different place then. I said, did you ever think that maybe that place you were in has come around again? And maybe maybe that song would really be appropriate now or could be worked in a way that it is more. Yeah, I know, but it's an old song. Yeah, but if you're gonna if you're gonna hold back all of your create if you're gonna hold back a portion of your creativity for me that could help me help you, then I, I, I don't know how to work with you because it's too restrictive. You've gotta play me everything. You can't be the one that says I don't want that song out there. You have to be the one that listens to sensibility and say, All right, let's do a demo of this song. It's your song. It's not going to go out to anybody unless you okay it. But at least, let's get it outside of you. Let's cut the song as a demo in your living room, in the studio, wherever. Let's try a different version. Let's see if this song that has this tremendous melody and these really good lyrics can turn out to be something. You know, just be, be something that you'd be proud of and you know, it's like a wrestling match, Tony. It's it's really hard. And the groups that don't want to, uh, for, for these reasons, don't want to play this or, or reveal everything they have that it could be just something else as part of their future and success, it, it makes it impossible. You know what I'm saying? You can't make an album with someone who doesn't want to make an album. And they don't have to say, they don't have to say no they don't want to make an album but they when they act like that it's clear and so there are different cities in the country that I shall that shall remain unnamed that I've experienced that that people would rather be local heroes than sure. risk venturing out and having failure and oh my god See, there's a lot of a lot of family pressure you know, Pete, I think maybe your audience, a lot of your audience may not understand how much family pressure there is on some of these artists. Um, either the parents, you know, when they're showing this ability to write and create as, as young people, whatever age that might be, and the parents are saying, listen, you don't go to college. You know, this music stuff, it's pie in the sky. Nothing's ever going to happen with your music. It's just not going to happen, and and or, or you have or you you have a teacher's education, you got a master's in education, 
and you and or you're in the middle of getting one and you want to stop and do what? You want to do music? We didn't pay for this for school for you to do this. I mean, you can just imagine the rest of the conversation. So here's, here's what happens. It's like, you ever see a, pot, a pot of boiling water on the stove and it starts, let's say you're cooking pasta or whatever it might be and it's boiling and it's, and you got the lid on it, but it's going over the sides and you realize the top of the stove is getting all like flooded from this boiling water running over the top and you, you're trying to hold the lid on, but it's like steamy and, and well, that's what happens to these people. You cannot hold this creativity down inside people who are creative. It comes out in different ways and not always good ways. Some people gain 150 pounds. Some people are just unha so unhappy because they're not able to express themselves. Um, and I, I, I think that there are some people who are creative that are able to overcome this stuff at home, but it's very, very difficult for them. And then there are other people who just succumb to it and never quite, you know, if they can be a local hero, then in their eyes, maybe they've done the impossible as far as their family is concerned. But if they venture out to the rest of the country and they fail, then they're going to hear, see, I told you so. It's very, very difficult. And I want to mention something else, too. In the same, it, it, it becomes being in the studio my entire life with, with artists, uh, you know, almost seven days a week, 12 months a year. It becomes obvious that what goes on in a family when, when you grow up has a huge part to do with uh, a person's success and a person's ability to create or continue to create. And for example, in the same family, if you have, let's just say, let's just say there's three kids in the same family and you're all growing up and you're different ages. And let's say one of the parents is uh, maybe a disciplinarian or, 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 or pretty tough. I mean, just, this is just an example. And these are my opinions. I, I'm not saying that this is how it is. I'm saying this is what I've observed and these are, these are my opinions. And I think I'm closer to being right than wrong. Well, let's, let's say the parents are, you know, one of the parents is really tough. Out of the three kids who are growing up, you might have two that have the mentality of, you know, I, I want to be, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be in the trades. I, I, I want to build houses or buildings. I want to run a backhoe. I want to drive trucks for a living. I want to, uh, I, 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 I want to uh, frame homes. I, I want to be, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be an auto mechanic. Okay. Then you might have, and, and all these are, are, are really creative and great things, but it's different than someone who says, I want to, you know, I, they don't even think about it. They just start writing songs. And usually that person who writes songs takes all that family stuff far more seriously. Uh, not that it shouldn't be taken seriously, but far, they take it inside them far deeper than the other two siblings. They, the other two siblings who might want to be in the trades or other businesses or whether it be a stockbroker or what, whatever, or, or, or a real estate agent, those those people seem to be able to fend off that family stuff that the person who has this ability to 
write songs and create music is not able to do. And they're really affected by it. And, and I've been in the studio, well, when, you, when you're in the studio for two, three, five, six, nine months with, with uh, an artist, and at some point they start, it's a natural thing for them to start revealing their innermost everything. And you start realizing that how affected they were by their surroundings. There, sometimes one person in their life made an enormous difference in them going forward with their creativity. And uh, sometimes they they just kind of do it on their own and and uh, uh, meet people along the way that were like-minded, and they and and they clicked. And this certain this thing with music happened that wouldn't ordinarily happen like the sum of the two is much stronger than the, the two the two people separately if, if you know what I'm saying sure. and and I, I think that this repeats itself I've seen it repeat itself so many times that the people who are creative in a way of in a way of creating take in this family stuff in a way that's very difficult to them and uh, it's something that they that they live with, with their brothers and sisters when they talk to them about it. They go, ah, mama, mom didn't mean anything like that. Or then you go back, they talk about the past. And, oh, dad didn't mean anything. But he's just pulling up to you. Oh, man, it really affected me. So I'm just saying that, and part of that angst is where some of these songs come from. Right? And it's part of that, whatever you want to call that stuff, is where the creativity comes from. It's, 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 it's great material for songwriting. It's just the other psychological stuff that comes with it sometimes is difficult. But, you know, nevertheless, they, a lot of these people who are creative end up in a, in a really cool place. I just wish I could help more people become successful because there are so many people out there that are very talented and they just never meet the right person. Uh, to, or the right set of people that can be a vehicle to for all of them to get to where they're where they want to go or where their dream is, you know. Absolutely, you know, you, you touched on so many great things there that uh, uh, I've experienced. <clears throat> excuse me, and that uh, I you know I deal with in, in the work that I do. And uh, uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is, I don't know where I formed up this uh, uh, sentence. But uh, I was telling someone one time, I go, where you go in life oftentimes depends on when you were being raised is whether there was an, uh, uh, an arm around your shoulder or a hand on the back of your neck. So, uh, you know, yeah. uh, my friend Rich yeah. Scheidner, who just wrote a, a great book called Kicking Through the Ashes about his ex- experiences as a stand-up, told me, he goes, look, he goes, here's how it works. He goes, the difference between Paul Reiser and Sam Kinison. Sam Kinison can never be a sitcom star. And Paul Reiser was a good comic, but actually a very successful sitcom star. He goes, a, a good sitcom star is the kind of guy that goes in front of his mom and his friends with just some keys in his hand. He goes, look, mom, keys. And everybody laughs. He goes, a stand-up is the kind of guy who, as he's walking through the room, they just beat you because you were there. He goes, the guy who, could, the guy who got beat becomes a stand-up. The guy who got coddled becomes a sitcom star. And another great thing, this kind of goes into what happens to artists later after their success Terry Kirk, who was uh, uh, with the association, uh, told me one time, because I was talking about uh, some of my drug experiences and, uh, you know, how, uh, how they evolved. And uh, he said, we used to have a saying on the tour bus. 
which was watch out for the acid it leads to beer so um <laughs> that once you've gone that far out with a drug that you almost have to have a drug that kind of shuts that down you see that with certain artists don't you that when you're able to get them to go it's for people who aren't artists don't understand what a frightening place it's go that you don't know the next word that's coming out of your mouth in front of a thousand people you don't know the next note is being paid uh, going to be played when you're spending thousands of dollars in a recording studio it is uh, it's as frightening as jumping off of a cliff in the dark and hoping that there's enough water at the bottom so that you don't die and when you go through that sometimes you want to go to a safe place you've done this incredible album then you'll all right next i'm doing a christmas album do you see that with sir do you think if that's the issue is taking some of these great artists who do this incredible work and then they pull back or then they go into that drug and alcohol or just eating phase or whatever it is or uh, psychological problem phase that to get them from that great work to the next great piece do you have you encountered that issue do you know what i'm talking about here i i, I well let me let me answer and, if, and stop me if i'm if i'm not getting this but what usually happens is in, in at least in the music business let's say let's say you turn on the radio or or, or you go on the internet you listen to music wherever wherever you listen and you hear this great, you hear this band, and you go, wow, who is this? I love this song. I love this band. Who is this? Well, to get to where they were, to get to where they are at that moment, suddenly to be on the, uh, in the public side, um, they've had usually 18 or 21 years. Let's say they've had 21 years to write that out. Then they get a record deal, and they have success, and then they have 10 months to write the second album. So, and then when the second album tanks, which, it, which statistically happens, um, they get scared. And the third album is, if they have it in them, the third album is usually successful again. And as far as... Uh, there were very few people who were able to do, you know, it's called the sophomore slump, you know, so sure. the freshman album, the freshman album is, is usually pretty terrific. Uh, and, and, but there are very few people who have had a, uh, a sophomore album that really did as well or better than the, than the very first album. Cheryl Crow uh, <coughs> had a second album that was great. And her and her album subsequent, you know, with, with some variations, were all really great. And I mean, she had great writers working with her and, and, and all that. I'm not taking anything away from her. I'm saying it's just smart to, to do what she did and listen to the people around her that helped her. But there are very few people who have a great second album because of what I just described. So talking about getting into drugs and. You know, I'll tell you something about a lot of a lot of what your audience sees on TV and hears about and reads reads about is really um, not quite accurate. Like some of the biggest stars, and and I've worked with some of the biggest stars. Um, they're business people. Okay. Yeah. I I, I worked with Madonna. She came. To the, to the session in, the, in a woman's business suit and she just 
not only looks looked amazing, but she was you take her really seriously. These these people are uh, are early to their sessions. They they are ready to perform. They whatever they did the night before is not part of this next day. And if they did anything the night before that was considered partying or whatever it might be, all of these people, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't like naming names, but just take my word for it. They come in and they're ready to play. And well, I don't think it would hurt if you're if you're mentioning names of people who've come in and you know that, that, yeah, a positive experience. I mean, you and I talked about that. Neither one of us like trashing people. Uh, you know, there, there's there's a there's a big industry of that. Both of us have divorced ourselves from. But you mentioned uh, something very positive here about Madonna, about why she you know she came in you know uh, uh, ready, willing, and able, as they say, to work with a clear vision, and that she wasn't letting. Uh, her life. I, t- I say this to young comics. I go, your life doesn't matter when you get on stage unless it can incorporate in a positive way in the work. You're going through a breakup. Yeah. The breakup can't affect the show because I don't know as an audience, but I can go to a movie where nothing will be affected because it's celluloid running through a machine. You're the same thing. You're a show. And if you're going through a divorce and you it can then affect the work in a positive way, yes, but if it's going to cause you to stand up there and mumble, no. So you mentioned yeah, you gotta leave you gotta leave it at the front door and and and, and go for the rest of it. You know, is what I think. Could you could you you know I, I kind of want to get into I mean that was one of my uh, uh, one of my quandaries when I was uh, setting up this interview and going through what I talked to. You. I go I know we said it was gonna be thirty minutes. We're already a little bit into thirty minutes here. Uh, that I was gonna only get to about one percent of what you can offer to uh, the public as far as uh, uh, interesting things to hear about and what you can offer to artists about things that can help them grow and sustain. But I want to get to a couple things here. I want to talk about what you're currently doing, uh, but I want to ask you a couple of fun questions. Is there anybody else that the positive is really, the experience is really positive that we, we learned something about Madonna from you that we didn't know just now? Is there any other artist you might want to mention in a positive way that we can learn something from about the way they approach their work? Uh, let me, yes. Uh, um, everyone I've worked with. Oh, very good. Okay, no, okay, I got you. I got you. And, and, and no, no, I, 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 I just wanted to say that first. And uh, as, as far as Madonna goes, you know, I, I, I know her, I knew her manager then, and he said to me, um, she's, you know, he says, you know, I'm concerned about her. She's, she's, she's rehearsing for this show, and she's rehearsing, you know, 15, 18 hours a day. And and I said, geez, I, I, I always saw her as being really talented. You know, what the, why is she putting so much time into it? And he said, because she wants it to be really uh, great in every way and, and have her audience get it. And, you know, I thought to myself, if Madonna and other people like her have to do that, what about us mere mortals, you know? It's like you have to put the time in. I don't know Eminem, but I I know people that work with Eminem, and you know the perception of Eminem is whatever your perception is. But in real life, Eminem is a businessman. He comes in, he's early for sessions. He's he's uh, when I say he's a businessman, he approaches it like he's a professional, and so is she. And they approach it like uh, okay, 
I'm I'm here. I'm ready. Let's go. I've re- I've rehearsed like like on Madonna stuff. She she was all rehearsed and she had a there was a certain song that she was going to do. It was actually Santa Baby, and she came up with an idea about how to do, present the song and and in uh, in her own way. And she to know to do that, you had to put the time and the homework into it. You know, and and uh, I'll never forget the producer from uh, uh, who who was working. The producer who did Layla uh, was talking about the band, and I was talking to him about the making of that of that song, which is, if you ever take that song and listen to it from beginning to end, it's like a holy cow moment, you know? It's like, it's like you know, three and a half, four minutes of, like, you can't shut it off, and it doesn't, it grabs a hold of you and doesn't let go, and he says, look, these guys would, would, be out partying the night before, but the next day they come in ready to play, and uh, and uh, he said, "What am I going to say to them? Am, am I going to bitch to them about it when they when they're ready to play and they're they're early for their sessions? And everybody's on, on on target." And he goes, "He goes, no, I I leave them alone and because they they do what they do and it, and, and it works, but the perception of people who are not who are either unsigned." Are unsuccessful. The perception is that it's drugs and alcohol, and I, I, I'm saying I'm here to tell you that I've worked with so many successful, and luckily that I, I was it, was. it was so great to be have this opportunity to work with such successful people, and just to be around them and 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 and, and learn about them and 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 how this how this all comes about um you, you you know people may disagree with me but i can't disagree with what i saw and what i experienced and my conversations with them which is really minimal it's not it's not stuff i ever really got into deep conversations with any of these artists about but when you're sitting next to these fabulously talented people every day shoulder to shoulder um they have one thing in common and it's just this thing about their music and and uh, while I'm not saying the rest of their lives are perfect or, or, or anything like that I'm just saying that their musical life is like they're plugged in and then there, you know I know an artist and I, I don't want to say his name because it's just unnecessary but I know an artist that, that did an album a big artist that did an album and the album tanked and he just tore up his apartment or his home inside trash and stuff and saying, you know, what do these people expect from me? And then he regrouped and he 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 came together with some additional people and the next album was like enormous success. And if I had one thing to say to people in this business who who who, who have either had success and aren't having it anymore or haven't had any success yet, I would say I would say there are two words. One is perseverance and that's the one thing that will assure you that you'll have your ticket to cash. And when you, when some of the people, some of the artists I'm talking about, well, all of the artists, they, they hear it in a similar way. When they hear a piece of music, it translates into one word, fun. They'll sit and say, wow, that was fun to listen to. And I, I think that it comes down to anything that's creative, whether it's comedy, or, 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 or whether it's music or 
anything like that. I think I, I think that the one word is when you're done when you're done listening. If you say to yourself, "Wow, that was fun," I mean, that's what that's what makes it all work. It's just people can't always see how to get it there. It, it, it's sort of a blind, a dead, uh, a dark hole, so to speak, or a dark hallway. They don't know how to take it the rest of the way. That's why no that's why no one in this business does it by themselves you need someone else with you that has a vision that can help you get to the finish line not always hard to find but if you have perseverance and you fail and you get up and get back on the horse and you ride again and, and you, you you persevere you will you and, you and if you really have talent you you'll be able to do that and one other thing i i just want to mention something i don't want to forget this because I think it will encourage people that are that are creative and that are listening to this show. Do um, you remember Lacta from Saturday Night Live? Like Andy Kaufman. Andy, yeah. Andy Kaufman, right? Sure. So, all right. So, so Andy Kaufman, before he was ever on Saturday Night Live, used to appear at a at a a comedy club in Manhattan, and sometimes after work, like one o'clock in the morning. I, I would just go there myself just to like try to relax from the day and then go home and go to sleep and start again. But okay, so now I'm in this comedy club and Andy Kaufman is standing up there and he's telling these jokes. There wasn't, e Tony, I'm here to tell you, there wasn't even a sympathy left. <laughs> it was so horrid and so uncomfortable joke after joke with the audience didn't know well they didn't react nothing not a sound not a sticker they're actually horrified <laughs> it wasn't anything it wasn't anything like it was dirty or anything it wasn't like nasty you know stuff it wasn't porn we're not talking about anything you know that type of language this i just can't explain it except i personally wanted to crawl under the table and 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 just hide from, because I felt so embarrassed for this guy. I wanted the crawl on the table. He should have wanted the crawl on the table, but he didn't know. He just, I, I was so embarrassed for him, and I didn't know him, that I just wanted to like, oh my God, I feel so bad for him. There's not even a sound from the audience for half an hour. And so the next guy that came on, which I, I won't name, uh, who was, and it, it couldn't be any bigger of a comic in this business, now um, came on and he would get a couple of laughs so now I leave it's 2 o'clock in the morning I leave and there was this deli called Smiler's Deli and I would pick up a few things I wanted to take home like you know a quarter of Hargan does <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know I want to take a few things home and maybe for breakfast or stuff and these, these two guys Andy Kaufman and, and this other guy walk in and they're just standing there at the counter ordering something deje completely dejected, okay? So I saw this happen. Maybe a month later, I went again. I saw the same thing happen as if, I, as if, as if it was a video repeat of the first time. And so 10 months later, I see Andy Kaufman from Saturday Night Live. And I sat up on the couch and said, oh, my God, that's that same guy. How, how did they get this to work? And that's where I've sort of made my own personal study of like over the years of how people 
went from this to being incredibly successful. I I don't know if I actually have the answer, but I, I saw the process, which was important to me to be able to make the best records I could for people, you know, as a, as a recording engineer and a mixer. And uh, the, what they did was they got rid of the stuff that was horrid, and they focused on the stuff that could be expanded on and actually made funny. And there you have Andy Kaufman. And then the other guy um, went on to become so huge, not at that moment, but later on, that it was just unbelievable. And so when you look at that and you say, here's two different lives that, uh, uh, that took separate paths, that was started out as some of the worst stuff you would have, you couldn't even sit through it. You're only there because you had no place else to go. Um, and they became successful. So I, I really believe that if you have some talent, uh, that if you have something and you can develop that, uh, that it goes back to having someone believe in you and champion you and 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 maybe show you a different path that you couldn't see yourself. And like I say, no one does this themselves. And if you read, if you read, when I when I talk to when I talk to players and stuff, you know, unsigned people, and I say, well, you know, this song. Oh no no no! I, I I'm afraid someone's going to steal that song. <laughs> well, I, I, so I say to them, look, look, how long has it been in the drawer? Oh, ten years. I said. Well, you gotta find somebody who's gonna screw you the least. That's what you're gonna you get. I said, you're gonna get screwed. You're getting screwed. What are you afraid of? You're like, to find, to, to find a situation where you're not gonna get screwed, you might as well sit at home and not get out of bed. I mean, you gotta find somebody who's gonna screw you the least, and get your <laughs> stuff out there, and, and there's enough money. When you have success, there's enough money for everyone to do unbelievably well. And and those people who you think are going to screw you were actually going to help you because it helps them. There has to be something in it for them too. If they think it's their re- if they think you're their retirement, well, if you go to a, a good attorney, it can be your retirement too. You know, and, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, no, I, I, go, I, there was a, um, a there's so many parallel stories as, as you. Yeah. What's interesting is when you have the perspective of of being in or around uh, the entertainment business as long as uh, you've been, you have, and as I have, you you see these parallels. That's where sometimes, at the at the very least, sometimes with a young artist, we can we know from seeing something happen over and over again what's going to happen next. Not because we have a crystal ball, but you can go, this is what I saw lead to success x amount of times, which means that's one of the strongest uh, possible ways to achieve it. And so many of the things you talked about here today, this last thing you talked about, just I won't mention names, but I watched a comic one time that wasn't getting any laughs except with one particular joke. And he was a nice guy. I had hired him to open for me. And, uh, and I was actually trying to help him write his act while we were on the road. But the one joke that he got laughs with, I went, I've heard that joke somewhere. And I, I, and I knew he didn't steal it because I could hear it came from his voice. So I said, that joke, I go, I've heard it. And then he mentioned a really big, famous comic. And he goes, did you hear it from that comic? And I go, yeah. 
And I go, did you? And he goes, well, here's what happened. He goes, I did a benefit show with that particular comic. And when I came off stage, they asked me if I could buy the joke, if they could buy the joke and offer me a hundred bucks for the joke. And I told them it was my only good joke and I, I wasn't in a position to sell jokes. And they said, that makes sense. Uh, no problem. He goes, and then they it, then they stole the joke anyway. And I go, huh? And I go, he goes, what do you think about that? I go, I think you should have taken the hundred bucks. Because... <laughs> You know, and the joke world is a little different than the song world is that jokes. Jay Leno said a great thing one time, and he said, people are going to steal your jokes right faster than they can steal. Um, there's so many <laughs> so many things I wanted to uh, 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 talk to. You know, and it's funny, I was watching a documentary on A.P. Carter last night of the Carter family, and uh, there's always been a controversy with him because he wasn't a songwriter. He was a song aggregator. So many of the songs that uh, became part of uh, the American songbook were songs that A.P. Carter went around, you know, the hills and valleys of Tennessee and, and uh, Alabama and uh, Virginia and went to little towns and said, well, what's the song here that you all play on Saturday night? And kind of wrote it down. Songs like You Are My Sunshine, for instance. Um, there were so many things I want to talk to you about. We're going to have to have you back again. We want to have you back again very soon because I told Shirley, I go, I bet you I get to two, two of the questions. Two. And I think we got to two. I want to talk to you about what you're doing now. I, I just want to say, the last time I saw you in person, face-to-face, uh, -face, uh, I was standing in a room with you, and you said, Crosby, Stills, and Nash recorded some of their best stuff in this room. And we're in a room that was all torn up with, you know, plywood laying around and stuff uh, on Sunset Boulevard, you know, at the crossroads of the world. And it's a recording studio that you now... Tell us about that recording studio and what you're doing now. Okay, great. Um, Graham, in the 70s, in the late 70s, Graham Nash built a studio in, in, a, in a place called Crossroads of the World. And uh, it's an amazing place. And well, the whole Crossroads is in this location. And, and he built this studio, a really wonderful place, using what I call an old line design. And, and the place has it's the kind of studio that, uh, well, Larry Rickman and myself have, have, have who, who is the president and CEO of, uh, of Aftermaster and Studio One Media, he and I uh, have, uh, the company have studios at, at Crossroads. And right next door to us was this, this space that, that was always occupied by other people running running Graham's old studio as a, as a studio and over the over the years since the late 70s it had become more and more uh, like they had done people had done updates but but it needed to be refurbished you know the everything was looking tired uh, um, and it needed some help and so finally and we were lusting after this place because you could just you could just taste how amazing this place was even if it's even in its roughest form, and so we finally got the opportunity to take it over, and we're refurbishing the place now. And it's we found this great console from that actually used to be in Saturday Night Live for about four years. So well, the last one through that console, funny, a funny console, and uh, then it was at a, a, a Quad Studios in New York, and great records were done on it. So we know the console sounds great. We put it in this beautiful control room that Graham designed and and uh, some of the wood for I understand some of the wood in the ceiling and, and the walls in the studio 
could be from his home or his porch or something very cool like that, you know. And uh, uh, so this, we're almost done with this studio, and uh, we have some great people working on it with us, and we should be done in a few weeks. And it's going to be really one of the premier studios in the country, maybe the world. And I, I don't, I don't say that so, so. Uh, I don't throw those words around, you know. But I've been doing this a long time, and and with, with Larry's involvement and and uh, uh, his commitment to this, I I, I think we're going to have a, a truly special place here. It's the kind of place where you walk in and and it kind of says, okay, let's go to work. Let's let's sit down and write some songs. Let's, let's record some songs. Let's let's go. And that's the feeling I got from other successful studios that I've been in, and this is even stronger, you know. And um, w w part of what we do now is uh, I I'm the, I'm the co-inventor with Larry of this technology uh, called uh, uh, Aftermaster, and it's a it's an an audio pr it's a processor for, well, let's just say we, we have it on a chip now. We can use it in a computer for mastering. We can use it, I mean, it, without a code. We, we can use it in a computer in a conventional way for in a DAW digital audio workstation for, for mastering. We can use it, put it on a code. We can put it on a chip, which we've done. Uh, uh, and it can, because of how powerful this technology is. Um, it can be used in headsets, it can be used in televisions. We have this thing called the Aftermaster TV box, which we, we, we put on Kickstarter and it exceeded the goal and and uh, people from all over the world uh, uh, sent money in for pre-orders. And what it does is it, 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 it's this little box the size of an iPhone uh, and a great looking little box, I must say, that you put between your 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 uh, convert your your TV box. You know the box that comes from the cable company. Sure. And put it between that and your TV, and suddenly you can hear everything that people are saying on TV. And you're not, you know, when you without it, you got to take the picture and you got to raise up the dialogue, and then the explosions come in. And your wife or the girlfriend will yelling at you. Turn that stuff down. It's too loud. And you turn it down. And they start talking again, and you can't hear them. What are they saying? You got to back up. This little thing, this this box with this really special chip in it, um, stops all that from happening without you hearing what it's doing. And it just makes it so you hear everything, but yet you hear the dialogue clearly. But yet all the explosions are clear, but they're not. You don't want to grab the clicker and turn it up or down. Um, and, it's, and, and it's going to be very, very, very successful because there's a need for this. And the other thing is that the little speakers and flat-screen TVs, flat-screen TVs are becoming like a fashion statement. They're making them really thin, and they're making them... The, and as they do that, the speakers are getting smaller and smaller. And speakers are like it's simple. It's physics. They have to be large enough to move some air so you can hear what people are saying, and you can hear whatever else is going on, the movie you're watching. And uh, and this this technology makes it sound like the manufacturer put bigger speakers in your TV. 
And if you're using a sound bar, you're using an external system and make that system sound even better, bigger, more important. And I'm not kidding. It's it's sort of the it's sort of all the years of of uh, my my experience and 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 knowledge from that experience, and along with Larry's uh, knowledge, uh, came to fruition at this part in, in, in our lives. And and this same chip. Uh, look, look. In order to get headsets to sound good, if you're wearing headsets to listen to music, they'd have to be the size of watermelons on each side of your head to really get <laughs> the sound of what music should be. Look at how small those speakers are that are that are on your ears. Well, they can't make them bigger, bigger because they look goofy. However, this technology makes it sound like the speakers are much bigger and much more important and everything is more impressive without changing the creator's intent and what they approved when they when they created the song or the music or whatever. And I have the advantage of being in the control room all my life and knowing what stuff sounds like before it leaves. So when, uh, so when an artist and a producer and a record label approve the final mix at that studio and in their office, which is they're hearing something right off the master. That's the real deal. However, because of what digital does, and because people don't think that copying digital over and over changes it, uh, which it does dramatically, because of what it does, even music changes a lot by the time the public hears it. Even on the best download, even on the best streaming uh, 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 shows and the best streaming uh, companies and it isn't long before you realize that there's either a buzz over the songs or they all sound the same because they're trying to get them all at the same volume or whatever our technology brings it back to more like what was heard in the control room at the time which is important because it moved people and that's the thing a lot of music now is is not everything, but a lot is devoid of feel, um, um, and and it was it had feel when it was created, but it kind of loses that impact. Like if you listen to like I was just briefly, and then then we both have to go here. But I was listening to uh, Last Night Real Life. They had this time life thing up about songs from a certain era, um, and every song had this tremendous feel like it just took you over and I know that they go back to the masters when they when they make these because I used to because at A&M in our master room we used to do a lot of the uh, time life stops so they went to great pains to find the original tapes and then great pains to transfer those tapes and keep it accurate so that's one of the reasons a lot of that stuff retains that swing which is a lot of modern music is devoid of it. It may happen when they create it, and usually does. But it, take my word for it, it gets lost along the way, and it's just sound after a while. So our technology brings it back to more like what was what was approved by the artist and what was intended by the artist and producer, and that's really important because really it's the emotional content of, of everything whether it's comedy, whether it's music, no matter what it is in entertainment, 
the emotional content that moves the listener to either want to hear it again or to go out and buy it. And that's why I was so excited about this technology. And because it has to do with audio, it can this chip can be in any product, whether it's a laptop, headset, uh, phones, uh, and, and make it a better, even the hearing aids, make it a better listening experience uh, even he- he- hearing it would be a better quality of life for people because this is so musical sounding and less annoying sounding uh, than 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 what we buy in the store. Anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I got, I got. You know, you're right. We do have to end, but I got, I got to say, uh, first off, you know, uh, I've always thought the world of you, and of course of uh, Larry Rickman and everybody who's involved there, and. Um, uh, we are also we have also tracked the progress of uh, this exact chip you're you're, you're talking about because uh, uh, because that, that we know you guys and and uh, with a, uh, we, although I'm no longer really involved with the company anymore I was at one time but uh, we we are uh, apprised of the progress uh, w- through each step and we've actually uh, uh, experienced uh, the the prototype a couple times and even in the prototype it's amazing I got to ask you. Okay, you got to tell me. Uh, I believe I talk about being present at the creation. I may have been present at the creation of the beginning of the movement of this chip when you literally were trying to make a microphone work for someone if they were three feet tall or six feet tall, stationary microphone, and you stumbled on new sound, a new way to have sound. And you, I remember your eyes were as big as half dollars and you weren't high. And Larry was excited. You guys actually gave me a CD of Johnny Cash's uh, uh, doing Trent Reznor's uh, Hurt and said, listen to it originally and listen to it after we, we've done with it. And it was stunning. Is this everything you're doing now? Is it Was it birthed out of that moment when you were just trying to make this microphone work correctly? Or was or is that a separate thing? Do you remember that? I, I was. Yes, I do remember it. I remember it clearly. And uh, uh, the... I think I was just trying I, to steal a sandwich I, out of the I, break room and you grabbed me. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was the birth of it, but it was... In, in, the, in the application we were using that for, it was a very extreme application. And trying to get it to work, trying to get that... Uh, to get a person that was so far away from the microphone to be heard clearly was beyond difficult. And it went. It wasn't the birth of it, but it was the birth of being able to do something that extreme, which is not being used. Uh, that extremeness is not being used in what we're doing today. Uh, I, I think all the experiences along the way over the years all led to this, to this, uh, what we're doing now. You know, and and I think in the original my studios, which were uh, where we were asked to do, we were asking the equipment and the microphone to do things that had never been done before. We had to come up with really unusual solutions, and it, it made me think about it in, in, in a different way, which was really good, but uh, um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that that was, a, uh, that wasn't the beginning of it. It might have been the beginning of you seeing me get excited about solving a huge problem. And I was really, and I was really proud that I could do that, and uh, uh, 
you know, actually, there's a funny story behind it, which we'll talk about maybe next time. But how's that? All right. You know, excellent. You know, with when I'm talking to you, just one answer leads to a hundred other questions that I'm excited to ask you. But I have to curb my excitement now uh, because we're going to come to the interview. Uh, you will come back soon if I if I because uh, uh, we got more to talk with you about. Correct. Yeah, I, I I would love to come back because I I really I really. This, you know, I really like passing on. I, I've been so fortunate to work with such amazing people and, and learn from them, you know, and their managers and their and, and the people around them about what makes it all tick and that helps me do my job better. But there's so much that I think I could m- maybe add where some things I'm saying may not stick to, to some listeners and maybe some new things we do on the next show might and they might say, oh, I never thought of that. I get it. I'm going to try that for my career, you know. If I can, I, I like I, I like passing it on. And if I can help people be more creative or be more successful through their being creative, or even if it's, even if they're, uh, they have a, a job that's not in the music business, but their hobby is to do it and, and they want to do it better and get more jobs on the weekends or whatever, or at night or whatever it might be. Or write better songs, or I mean, I, I've seen so much in my career that I'd love to pass on more stuff. So whenever you're ready to have me back, I'll be there. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have you back in just a few weeks, Shelley. Uh, I may even see you before that because I, I may be popping in Los Angeles again soon. Ladies and gentlemen, and please, please tell Larry Rickman I said hi. He's the only guy who I've ever called boss, even though even though he's not my boss uh, anymore. He's the only guy I've ever called boss and was proud to call boss. I've had many bosses where I said boss and it was like ashes in my mouth with him. He's my, my nickname for <laughs> my nickname for Larry is the boss. I know some people call in my life. He's the boss. Uh, please tell Larry and Ari and John Lombardo and everybody that's involved with you that I said hi. Uh, love speaking with you. I learn every time that I talk with you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Shelly Yakis, sound engineer extraordinaire. Um, and uh, if you've been listening live later on this afternoon, this will be downloaded on ComedySchoolsRadio.com for your uh, listening, although not yet viewing pleasure. Uh, Shelly, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon. Yes, and I want to say just real quick, I also want to say that Larry made a big difference in my life also, and uh, and he's someone that, uh, that uh, you know, when I, said, when I said earlier that you need to connect with people that can... You, no one does this stuff alone, and and I certainly didn't do some of this stuff alone. So he's a big uh, influence in my life. So I just wanted to say that, and thank you. Thank you, Shelly. You know, real quick, I was when I was going through a very tough time in my life, and I and I thought a lot of people were going to kick me when I was down. Larry Rickman called me in his office and goes, you know what, we're going to help you. I ain't paying for it, but we're going to help you. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah, and, and that's, that's who he is. Yeah, that's who he is. All right, Shelly Yakis, ladies and gentlemen, from Aftermaster and so much more. You've been listening to This American Podcast special edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. We'll be right back after this.